begin this morning by wishing all of you fathers a happy Father's Day. Uh, I, I wish that this would be a typical Father's Day sermon, but we're in the middle of a series on the book of Esther. And so we started last week um, in chapters 1 and 2, and now we're in chapter 3. And what chapter 3 is all about is the topic of racism. This is an important topic, uh, even so far as what our church is about. We're Every Nation Vancouver. The name of our movement is Every Nation. And so there is inside of us a deep value <clears throat> to respect and honor ethnicities, to be a multicultural church and movement. And so racism is really perhaps the primary enemy against that vision. The way that we could define racism, there's lots of definitions, but the one that I find uh, most helpful is, and especially in terms of what we're going to be looking at in the book of, Eight, of Esther, is that racism assigns human value to visible differences. The, the uh, ethnicity having different cultures is something that God uh, created us with and deeply values. Ethnicity is not the problem. The problem is when it, uh, ethnicity moves to racism, when those differences now become a way to value human life and human dignity. And that's the problem behind racism. What Esther chapter 3 does is unpack four qualities of racism. Obviously, this is incomplete. The purpose of this message is not to talk about everything that needs to be said about racism, but it's to look at what the book of Esther teaches on this and to see if God can't help us uh, understand our own hearts and how to move toward a healthier relationship with those from other ethnicities. What I would ask before uh, we jump into the text is that you would please try to hear God through a very broken and flawed preacher. Uh, I think it would be easy to be able to simply listen for my performance, how well I'm saying what I'm saying, whether I'm saying the proper words and <clears throat> in the correct way with the proper emotion. Um, I don't know if that's going to happen, but what I would ask is that uh, you would ask God to be able to speak to you in the midst of my own inadequacies in trying to understand these things and work through them myself. Chapter 3 picks up the story five years later. The chapter 2 ends with Mordecai um, uncovering an assassination plot against the king. He saves the king, and now this is five years later. And it says, it begins with this, King Xerxes honored Haman the Agagite. <clears throat> now, uh, 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 King Agag was the king of the Amalekites, and they have a historic conflict between the Jews. So what this means is that uh, Haman grew up with a, uh, he was taught to have a prejudice against people of other races. This is just how he was taught. The, the term uh, uh, Agagite began with referring to a particular group of people, the Amalekites, but 
uh, it actually became to become an anti-Semitic term. That these people had such a hatred toward the Jews that if you also, even though you weren't an Agagite, uh, if you also had a, had a hatred toward the Jews, you recall that term as well. Because this is how ingrained their hatred toward the Jews had become. So they were a prejudiced people. What does prejudice mean? It means to have a preconceived, unfounded, and hypocritical judgment against others. It's preconceived. You come into a moment already with an agenda, already with a way of... Uh, with assumptions of what you think is going on. It's unfounded. It's not based on reality. It's just based on a, uh, a way of thinking and perceiving the world that is biased. And it's hypocritical. It looks at other people in a different way than we would evaluate ourselves. So let's say the story again then. King Xerxes honored Haman, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Um, so what's going on? There's no actual reason in the text that describes why Mordecai will not bow down to Haman. Perhaps we can think that it's because he was Jewish and to bow down to a pagan ruler would be to somehow violate Jewish law. Well, this isn't true. Um, there's nothing in the Jewish law that says you can honor a pagan king. Certainly, you can't do anything that violates Jewish law, but recognizing their position authority doesn't do that. So it wasn't about him being Jewish. The best that we can understand is that it's based on that ending of, of chapter 2, where... Uh, he did something that was great for the king, and he didn't get recognized, but Haman did. So this really could be um, uh, just about jealousy, that five years later, he's still upset that he wasn't honored and that uh, Haman was. <clears throat> so what we are sobered by, then, just as Queen Vashti's actions affected all women that we read in chapter 1, where all women were, uh, were put down because of the actions of one person. So Mordecai's actions are now going to affect all the Jews. Look at how this happens. In verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. So what is the second thing that we see? First of all, is prejudice. That's a bias going into any given moment. Then what we see is personal pain. That uh, Haman had an experience that confirmed his prejudice. <clears throat> uh, it's like, see, what I thought is true, and this moment, you know, supports that. But look at where it goes. Yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom. So first you have prejudice, then you have a personal experience, and then he asks that a projection that now generalizes an experience and has it become a stereotype of all the Jews. We all do this. 
even our brains are, uh, uh, are developed in such a way that they, uh, that they take uh, specific moments and try to put them into categories. This is an efficient way that our brain functions. If I, if I look at something on my wrist and I see that it has a face and a strap and I don't go, oh, I wonder, I, each moment I look at this, I don't have to start from zero trying to figure out what it is. I go, oh, well, that's a watch. Well, not only do we do that, does our brain do that in, in understanding the physical world around us, but it is even how we understand the people around us. That there is a, uh, just the way that our brains naturally work, we categorize people. We create stereotypes. And so these stereotypes are, are not just purely logical, they're emotional. They have bias to them. And we need to be honest about this. That the way that we look at others is often a projection of something, a characterization of something that isn't necessarily true, but it's what we've developed through our prejudice and through our personal experiences. Then in verse 8, it says, Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. And he doesn't say who they are. He's being a little bit sneaky here. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. Notice what happens now is that Haman takes his personal hatred and it doesn't stay contained to him. He now uses the power of the king to spread his desire to destroy a people. This is typical. It's classic of racism, where it's viral, and it's, and it, it, it's not content with being contained. It has to destroy all the people and use other people's power in order to affect that. So in verse 9, if it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. I'll even bribe you for, for you to do this, to destroy all the Jews. The last stage then of Haman's racism is systemic persecution. Began as prejudice, then it was personal painful experience. Then it was a projection that generalized it to an entire ethnicity. And then now we see it finding its culmination in a desire to persecute to the point of destroying all of the Jews. Racism always uses its power to destroy. Ultimately life, but even before that, to destroy uh, uh, opportunity to destroy personal rights, to destroy people's right to safety, to having mercy. This is what racism always does. It moves towards destruction, not toward life. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. See, it's, it's emphasized uh, who he is and what his motivation is. And then the king says, keep the money. Do with this people as you please. Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces, and the nobles of the various peoples. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, 
and the edict was issued in the city of Citadel of Susa. The king and Haman, now get this, so this is just, they've just written off a law to destroy a whole people. And then it says the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was bewildered. They're going, what's going on here? This is crazy. And the, and the king and Haman are having a drink together. So what do you do with this story personally? It's easy to kind of say, well, you know, I'm not like Haman. Uh, I can't, you know, identify with all those four things. I haven't persecuted anybody actively and wanting to see them destroyed. So this story doesn't apply to me. And it's not, um, and, and I've never done anything as intense as that. Sure, I might have had a few biases now and then, but uh, it's not nearly as drastic as Haman. Or we can say that look, I'm just unaware. I, I'm not trying to do anything. And we can kind of plead ignorance and dismiss ourselves from being part of this story. But the truth is, is that racism is in every heart. Why? Because in our sin nature, we're born self-centered. And we live in such a way that everything revolves around us, including our race. There is a propensity inside of the human heart. This is that, uh, that who I am matters more than those around me. And that I'm going to value who I am in terms of even my, my culture and background uh, more than the people around me. This is what happens. So how do we repent then? of racism. To whatever degree it's in our hearts, how do we repent of that? Well, what we've been talking about so far in Esther is this idea of God's hidden glory. That There's kind of a, a visible world. We talked last week about how King Xerxes had lots of, of pomp and grandeur and was always flaunting his power, but there was God's Hidden glory was behind the scenes actually orchestrating history toward his purposes. The gospel is described in this way. The gospel is described as a mystery, as something that is hidden. It doesn't mean that it's secretive. It just means that it's not always immediately visibly seen. And so how does the, the, this hidden gospel address these four qualities of racism? Let's look first at prejudice. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16, it says, Regard no one from a worldly point of view. What is a worldly point of view? Well, I think it's best described as a self-centered point of view. It's, I'm just going to use my eyes and in, in, in my mind to make judgments about all that's going on. It's a worldly point of view. And what does that kind of point of view do? Well, Galatians 3.28 talks about how we make judgments. And we make judgments according to race, economics, and gender. It says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What is this saying? Is that the worldly point of view is to use these external metrics to apply human dignity to other people. And this is abhorrent to God, that we are all one. And what, what makes us, what's the, the antidote to prejudice is equality. And what is that equality based on? Well, it's hidden measurements, isn't it? It's that we are all made in the image of God. Regardless of what our skin color looks like, regardless of what our culture or our language is, what we all have in common 
is we are all made to reflect the image of who God is. Furthermore, what we all have in common is our sin nature, in that we're all in need of a Savior and of a better life leader. What we all have in common is that there is brokenness inside of us. Even though we're made in the image of God, there's a brokenness inside of us, and we all need salvation. We're not better than anyone else. And what the cross does is equalize all humanity, for we are all in need of him. So this, this hidden gospel is found in the equality of all people, and it's the remedy to prejudice. What about pain? Uh, what about this personal pain that, that Haman experienced? What if you have stories of people who have wronged you? Here's what's fascinating about, about the, the function of pain in our life. That when we take the backdrop of prejudice and then we put on top of that the idea of pain, what pain often comes from is simply our own pride and prejudice. This is what we see in Haman, where for sure he should have been honored. For sure, that's true. But the level of rage that he has, where a hurt became a harm, the level of rage that he has is disproportional. And what this tells us is that what was ultimately hurt in Haman was his pride, that he had put his self-worth and identity in his position of power. And then whenever that was attacked, that was hurtful to him. And so his hurt is actually a sign of his prejudice. So how then... Uh, is, is freedom from racism found? It's found in humility. Philippians 2.3 says, In humility, value others above yourselves. Here's, though, I want to go further. Humility is actually hidden inside of insult. Now let me unpack this. That what you have is Haman being insulted. That was painful. Uh, he was insulted. Now, when we receive insult, we can go in one of two directions. We can demand dignity, or we in humility can consider others better than ourselves. What the insult does is actually reveal our hearts. And it actually creates space for humility to come. And you go, why am I insulted? My identity has been in my ethnicity has been in my intelligence, has been in my economic status. Okay, that God uses that, that insult and pain to reveal something of our hearts that needs to be repented over. So the hiddenness of, uh, 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 the, the hiddenness of humility is that it actually comes through insult. It reveals what's going on in our heart. Let's look at projection. So if, if, uh, if, the, if the way that we overcome prejudice is through equality, 
Inequality is based on the hidden characteristics that are true of all people. If pain is, uh, is overcome through humility in seeing what the source of our insult really is, that it's inside of us a, a heart of, of pride and prejudice, how do we now overcome projection? What's the solution to generalization? Well, it's also hidden. And it's hidden in relationship. Here's a very, if I can give one piece of advice, that we would change our language from talking about they to talking about who. They is generalizations. This is what they think. Whenever you find yourself or someone else using they language, it's prejudice, it's racist language. And instead, we need to replace that with who. Who's that? And whoever that is, or we imagine them to be, the remedy to that is to go and personally talk. And here it is, listen and understand. That's the remedy to generalization. James 1.9 says, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. What's the primary way to get rid of stereotype? Is to listen. To listen to the stories of others and to understand life from that other person's point of view. This is what sets us free. This is the, uh, that takes something, something that looks very, you know, big and on the outside. It becomes a personal relationship, talking to an individual and respecting and valuing their story. And finally, how do we overcome persecution? How do we repent of this? It's easy to say, oh, repentance means that I would just stop a behavior. But I can imagine some of us saying, well, I don't really have to repent then of my prejudice because I've never actively done anything. I haven't tried to destroy anybody. I haven't, you know, out loud criticized somebody for their ethnicity. I've not done any of that. But what we know from the Bible is that repentance is actually, uh, the, sorry, the fruit of repentance is actually a change of behavior, but repentance is actually something that happens before we change our behavior. And so what is that? It's somehow looking deeper inside of our souls and understanding what's going on there. Just because we're not like them, some white supremacist or whatever, doesn't mean that there's not racism inside of us. There's a story in John chapter 9 about a blind man who Jesus healed and could then see. And it becomes a parable that it's a contrast between a blind man who could then see with the Pharisees who thought they could see but were actually blind. Uh, this is what is said in, in verse 41. It says, if you were blind, he's speaking to the Pharisees now, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. So, uh, what repentance is over is actually recognizing that we, not, we don't just need a change of behavior, we actually need a change of sight. That uh, we need to face our hidden judgments. That inside of our hearts, there's a judgmentalism toward others that is driving our behavior. And ironically, those hidden judgments are based on visible differences. And that we need to be honest 
about where those judgments come from, and it's inside of our hearts. I remember a few years ago when I was faced with my own blindness. We were at a family funeral. All of our kids came. And um, after the ceremony, there was a luncheon. Now, some of my kids have a different skin color than I do. <clears throat> and when they went over to grab some of the uh, sandwiches and snacks, somebody came over to them and said, who let you in here? Do you think you can just steal our food? And in that moment, <clears throat> I saw something that I was blind to, but they've lived in their whole life long. And uh, there are so many things that we simply are blind to around us. There's a phrase that I've come to learn about recently that speaks again of my blindness. And it's a DWB. It means driving while black. I have never had the experience that I'm treated differently when I'm driving simply because of my skin color. I'm going to be pulled over more often. I'm going to be judged more critically. I haven't had that experience. And my repentance is to admit my blindness. That there are other people's reality that I know very little, if nothing, about. And unless I repent of my blindness, I will continue in racist behavior, thoroughly unaware of what I'm doing. And happy to plead ignorance. But I end up becoming a part of the problem, becoming a persecutor, simply because I've not looked at the blindness and sickness inside of my own heart. Typically, when we read the Bible, we put ourselves in the story as the victim. <clears throat> I think of the story of the book, um, uh, well, of the Exodus, when the Hebrews were taken out of slavery in Egypt and brought into the Promised Land. I have never heard a sermon preached on that that is from the perspective of the Egyptians. It's always from the perspective of the Hebrews. This sermon is not that. This sermon is preaching to, if you, I don't mean it eth ethnically, I just, but it's to the Egyptian, it's to the Pharisee, it's to you and I as we are offenders, not victims. And this is not easy for us, is it? We would prefer to be the victim, <clears throat> we'd be prefer to be the one who, uh, you know, we identify as being downtrodden and it needs to be rescued. But the Bible makes it clear that not only are we victims, which we are, but we're also the perpetrator, 
we're also the offender. And this is a time for us to look at how that's true in our own hearts. What is repentance? Well, we know what it is. It's, uh, it's moving toward the, uh, the great commandment. To love God and to love your neighbor as what? As yourself. That we would not judge other people uh, by their visible differences, but that we would retain human dignity in the way that we would want to be treated. So let me ask you in closing, what do you see when you look at others? What do you see? God compels us to look deeper, to look beyond the surface, to look beyond what our internal biases project on others, to look deeper at the human heart and how we all stand equally before God, needing to be loved, and respected and saved. Let's pray together. Father, I ask that you would give us the grace to look deeper. We confess that we're blind. And just as that blind man needed to be healed by Jesus, we need to be healed. We need to be healed of our prejudice and see the equality of all humanity. We need to be healed of personal painful experiences by admitting that our pride is perhaps the thing that is most wounded. We need to be healed of our projection by listening to people's stories. And we need to be healed of persecuting by being honest about our own blindness and repenting of our self-centeredness. Would you come into this moment and convict our hearts? Clean our eyes. Let us be able to see how you see. And let us be an advocate of, of, uh, of unity of reconciliation and of valuing diversity. We pray these all in the name of your dear Son. Amen.